Angahar Edwin, um, I'm very pleased to be having a conversation with you because you are deeply in the Mabinogi and in the landscape of Wales and other places. But I'm curious about partly what the relationship between those two things is, and maybe my question is which came first, hmm. the Mabinogi or the landscape of Wales? It's hmm. a really good question. I suspect that the landscape came first and the other element that you needed was human ears to hear the stories of the landscape mm. and then to give them words and shape and form and a culture in which to nurture and grow them. Um, but a story, and certainly things like the Mabinogion, I always think of the Mabinogion like a stratified piece of landscape in that it's got within it fossilised moments of that story's history layers and layers and layers and and going delving into the Mabinogi consciously with a view of I'm, I'm going to enter it and, and explore and, and excavate for this period of its story and what it might have been saying then and what clues are there is for me a fascinating thing because I think there's a richness in doing that of Trying and maybe, of course, it's it's you know we can never know what our ancestors thought, um, but I suspect that in terms of the basic things like love and hate and grief and joy and sensuality, actually, in the last two thousand two and a half thousand years, those human things haven't changed. It's just the cultural norms of how we express them that have shifted. That's an interesting thing you're saying because it's almost as if you're going perpendicular to the normal narrative line. You're talking like an archaeologist almost. Yeah, I, I, I like to think of it as story forensics uh -huh. because I'm very fascinated. I, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know the stories of the Mabinogion. Um, I utterly grew up with them um, as a child and... In a way, I, I then you know, went to university and, and used them as part of kind of research. I was looking at kind of, uh, I was studying Anglo-Saxon, so I was kind of doing comparative work on kind of Anglo-Saxon and, and early English and what was happening in, in the early Welsh texts. And so I looked at them from an academic point of view and, and mined them for information in that way. And then I went away from them a little bit again, although they always lived within me. Those characters live with me and act upon me actually could you tell me a little bit more about that that's fascinating that these these characters are not made up people in a land far away they're somehow quite close what does that feel like um i think for as long as i can remember i've always had some kind of rudimentary sense that they are many of them at least are the old gods mm -hmm. of our land that they have an energetic space um, and that they're archetypal in a way. Um, I think probably the first time I learnt that word archetype was probably studying English at A-level, and, and as soon as I knew that word, it seemed to fit in what those characters in the Mabinogion was. And I've certainly, as a, as a woman, um, I think as a young woman, where, uh, my own experiences of looking for um, role models, and you look... You cast the net quite wide. You look at, you know, maybe film stars, uh, maybe 
women in kind of who are who are doing really good things currently, but also there are figures in literature and in story that that draw on you. And certainly, I've lived my life where Ladeweth, Ariandrod, Rhiannon, uh, in particular, have seemed to me to, in their story, hold a lot of truth that was speaking mm. loudly to me as a woman at times. And I also know that I've been somewhat passionately in love with Gwydion. Oh dear. As a, yeah, I know. <laughs> as a teenager, Gwydion was a real pin-up and uh, that dark, mysterious, mm. powerful magic man and uh, it led to a series of of quite disastrous kind of <laughs> trying to put that into, into reality. Um, and then more, you know, now, if I'm looking for kind of an idea of, of, of manhood that I, you know, that I can be a, could be attracted to. It's, for me, it's Mana Wudda. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And also, very importantly, Teirnon. Ah. And if I'm looking for a sense of leadership, I might be looking at Vendigaedvra. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and if I'm looking for somebody who is a wronged woman, a downtrodden woman that still retains dignity, I'm looking at Branwen. Uh-huh. So they're all, they feel like elements that exist within me and, and, and sometimes come very clear at times of, of kind of, you know, at those intense times in life when you're looking for answers, these stories and these characters come close again and they kind of whisper in your ear and they come back. Just, just look at the story from my point of view. And that's an interesting part of, of the work too for me. That's absolutely fascinating that they're not, because that's a very unacademic way of looking at these stories. It's not an analysis as such, it's more a way of treating the stories as real. Yeah, I, I, and I question this for myself because, you know, it's very easy to get obsessed with landscape stories. And this story happened here, and it was, and Rhiannon walked this path. I'm not sure. <clears throat> that I think that. Um, I see it as a layer of otherworldly truth that is in the world that sits behind this world. And it is as true as as you and me sitting here now, but it exists in the space that exists between us mm. where this conversation is happening, in that magic space. So we're talking about Anhoven then, aren't we? We're talking about yeah, Anovn and Awen and Nuivre, the, the space between things, Nuivre. Uh-huh. You know, the, if we're talking about the web of life, that energy that connects all things, it's in that space somewhere. Because I know you're very specific about, because um, Anovn has several ways of, you can pronounce it. Mm. So Anovn is one way, yeah. and Anovn I think is another way. But you're very clear that it's Anovn. For you. Well, I don't really mind too much how people pronounce it. For, no, but for, for yourself, for me, you made a very clear choice. It's, it's Anoven because it's that utter deep, the utter mm. depth that is is within me. Uh, it is also exists all around me. Uh, so Anoven is both within and without. And I had I had a really a really interesting conversation. I was working um, on a storytelling project in India um, last year, actually, 
and I've been building it up with these beautiful musicians from the desert. And we don't share a language. They speak Marwari, which is the desert language of Rajasthan, or one of the desert languages of Rajasthan. But we have a Hindu, a Hindi singer, classical Hindi singer with us, and she translates between us. And I was watching um, <clears throat> Dara, the Kamaicha player. Kamaicha is a, a beautiful desert instrument. It's like a bowed mm. instrument. And when he puts the bow to the strings, something happens to his eyes and he goes somewhere else, mm. which is quite difficult, as you can appreciate in a storytelling performance, <laughs> when he doesn't understand what I am saying. Mm. And I'm, and the rest of the team, we're sending him psychic messages of come back, Dara, because we need to move the story on and we need you to, to, to get this cue. <laughs> it always works somehow. But he he was doing this, and I I, I stopped and I said, "Can you just ask Dad out where he goes when he puts the string to the bow?" And he said, "Well, I I go into the inner deep." Oh wow! I said, "Oh, what is that?" He said, "Well, my father taught me. His father was a master kamaicha player. That it's not about the technicality of how you hold the bow or the angle. Or mm. it's about you have to go into the inner deep to draw out the music." So it's an old, old way of thinking. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, Anne these days it, you know, people talk about do meditation and they probably, you know, they go to a place which I might describe as Anne um, because that's the, the word I have in the Welsh language to describe it. Mm. And I'm really intrigued about um, the connection between language and landscape and the spirituality of the land and how we can um, how we can draw those back actually and and bring them back into into everyday language because we have a deep tradition here of our own and the Mabinogion is a part of that mm-hmm. for me. We, we've talked about how the literalness of the landscape and characters from the Mabinogion and other stories present in that landscape is not necessarily the thing. So it's not identifying this thing happened here, uh, this person was here. But yet, uh, I've been on several walks led by you where um, people have contributed their own knowledge of the landscape we've been in, in a way that's been beautiful, shared, numinous, um, full of noivre, and I'd just like to invite you to talk a little bit about that, that aspect of landscape. So, where do we begin? I think landscape is our primary home as human beings. And I think one of the main malaise, if you like, of our age is um, the fact that most of us don't get access to it. I think our soul, our kind of, our human heart needs nature to soothe it, really, mm. to bring it back into harmony in some way. Uh, and so the walks that, that, that we've done together, while well, we've done that, it is about, we use story as a way to separate ourselves, to take steps away from the hard and real and into the mythic. Mm-hmm. And by mythic, I don't mean just stories. I mean a more spacious place where things are possible. We're allowed to feel and to intuit. And in 
that way exercise part of our humanity which is deep and which is overlooked in the everyday. Mm-hmm. And there is a place within that to look at um so say for example we're working with the fourth branch of the Mabinogi. There is a very if you look at a, an OS map of Wales, you will see the names associated with that fourth branch clearly marked in the north west corner of Wales. Um, and that is extraordinary in itself. Now that's not to say that at the time that the Mabinogi was part of our oral tradition, that those stories weren't also told in the Old North and in other places mm. and pasted onto other landscapes because they would have been old even by then. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, 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 the deities or the characters had slightly different different meanings. But for us, there is a connection through the place name. There were place names between the story that we have been given today and that landscape. And we can, by walking that landscape and telling that story, there is something magical that I cannot quite explain except to say that we all become more who we are at the beginning of time in our source, in our origins, by walking the land, sharing stories with each other, looking at beautiful sunsets, and really importantly, sharing friendship, Mm. and allowing ourselves to imagine these great stories unfolding in this glorious landscape. It also helps to make that big, vast landscape more human and more digestible um, and to give it depth and resonance. So instead of just walking over a field or um, walking into a hill fort, suddenly your imagination brings a whole host of characters to that hill fort. And when you go away from that hill for two years down the line, somebody will have a conversation with you. And you may not remember the name of the hill fort, but you'll remember the story that was there. Mm. So some kind of exchange has happened between you and that landscape and that story. You've left a little bit of yourself there, your energy of imagination. And you've taken a little bit of that landscape and it's lodged with you always. And it's lodged in your imagination as well and in in who you are somehow yeah i mean having been on a number of the walks that you've you've organized i can absolutely agree with what you're saying and there's this moment when we arrive at a place which is not just a place it's a destination of sorts or one in a series of destinations and everything seems to slow down Mm. and someone tells a story and it's not the story and it's not the place Mm. And it's not just the people, but it's somehow you bring all these things together and this beautiful, simple, very deep listening happens in a way that's simple, joyful, uh, and uh, just to, to, to echo what you were saying, it seems to be where we're from. It's our mm. native land. Yeah. I, it, I think we somehow we access a, an old part of our brain which is soothed by being in those Mm. conditions. And we're doing something that only humans can do. We're playing with metaphor. We're saying literally that things are, that maybe cannot be, but we can imagine them, so they are. 
-hmm. And we are, as far as we know, the only species on Earth that can do that. And so we're exercising that bit. And there's something about the human um, experience of, of doing and sharing that that is is incredibly important. Fundamental. Mm. Uh, fundamental to where we've been and, and really important for where we're going. But we don't do it very much. We don't do it very much. We don't do it enough. <laughs> we don't do it enough. Absolutely. I've just got one more question for you, mm. I think. And it's this. This material is alive, uh, it feels like, and it affects us as much as we are in charge of it. Well, more, actually. Is there a bit of the Mabinogi that's following you around at the moment? A moment or a character or a place? I've, I sp- I've spent a, l- a number of years with Rhiannon. Uh, I sense that that's kind of moving ahead. I'm really with Ternon at the moment, mm, actually. Interesting. Maybe I should just say, if people listening don't know, Ternon has got a bit part, but a very important bit mm. part, in the first branch of Mabinogi. And interestingly, we talked about it with um, um, when Tamar was here as well. So um, he has... A mayor every May Day Eve, mm-hmm. I think the the, the mayor falls, and every year the fold disappears. Mm-hmm. So Terno takes his sword into the uh, barn stable, whatever yep. it is, and a huge hairy claw appears, which he chops off mm-hmm. because it's grabbed hold of the foal. Outraged, he runs outside to chase after the monster. Then remembers, oops, I've left the foal back in in um, a shed. I better get back, and he gets back, and there. There is, presumably, the hairy arm somewhere on the floor. (laughs) The mare, the foal, and a child. Uh, And this child has golden hair and is waving its arms and is wrapped in silk. And later on, as the child grows, they realise that the child, that Ternon and his wife realise the child has exactly the same face as the king. Poish. So they go, oh my God, we've accidentally stolen the king's child. (laughs) We better take him back. So they do, and it's all kind of worked out in the end and everyone's happy. Um, so that's what happened. Mm-hmm. So Ternon is the man who both is brave, mm-hmm. he faces this monster, he's, he's very brave, he rushes out after the monster, then he comes back to what is gentle and needs nurturing. Uh, he and his wife, they kind of just pretend it's theirs, and then there's a point where they go, mm, we have to do the right thing. Yeah, and they do it. They do? Yeah. So why, why is Ternon so interesting for you? The reason why Ternon is so interesting to me at the moment is because one of the great tragedies, and you will know this because uh, I'm sure you've looked at it, is the sense that we've lost so many stories in the oh. Welsh language. And if you look at the name of Rhiannon, it means queenly, sovereignty, sovereign woman. Mm. Ternon is the counterpart name. Mm-hmm. Yes. Kingly man. And I suspect that we've lost a story, which is their story, that we're ah, just getting oh, elements that is of. really interesting. That we're just getting elements, snippets of, maybe, in that side story to, to Rihanna's story. And, I, and I'm fascinated by what made, you know, what was the process that, that separated them two and decided that Rihanna was a really great character and we should put her with... With Poish, mm. um, and then with Manawada. Um, whereas probably, you know, what we've got here, two deity figures, the sovereign, the sovereign Lays. figures of the land, um, and we've lost their story, but we've we've but we've still kept them in 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 the character list. Fascinating. So I, I'm I'm fascinated always by things like that, and I just 
and it's really interesting that that the qualities of Manawadan and the qualities of Teirnon are very similar. similar. Are very similar. So I'm just fascinated with it. He's not with me so much um, as, for example, you know, I've spent time with Rhiannon where I've really identified with Rhiannon and there's been times when I've really identified with Bledewith and with Ariandrod. So he's not with me in the same way, but I, I'm just... I'm just sitting with him and, and listening and trying to listen for where his story with Rhiannon might have been somehow. Mm. Just allowing myself to imagine that a little bit. Manawadan and Terran are both fascinating figures because yeah. they both they both in the stories have been very active. Yeah. But both of them have a point where they uh, refuse to to act in the in a continuation of what they have hitherto done. Yeah. Uh, and break their own pattern. Yeah, they, they make conscious decision to break mm. their own pattern, which is a big growing up moment. That's what, yeah. what, what we're asked to do as adults very often. So they are, they are fully adult men in their very centred manhood, I'd mm. say, sacred manhood. Mm. And I think that's, you know, we need more of those kind of... Um, positive role models actually out there and they're, they're, they're both wonderful and I, I personally my, when I tell the story of Rhiannon I find it very unsatisfying to tell the first branch only I, that's not a complete no. story for me unless you mm. put it with a third mm. um, and that's when you that's when all the little patterns you know the very clever things that happen in the Mabinogi the, rep- the repetitions the, the things that happen Almost exactly the same a number of times. You can just start to start to see it happening. It is a fascinating text that we have inherited because it's frozen in time. Yeah. Um, at a certain point in its its development, and after, well, I would have thought thousands of years of mm. of change. I mean, presumably during that time there would have been periods of stability. Mm. But our history of our country is a history of dramatic change uh, time after time um, and as the song says we're I'm all here mm. we're still here but things get bent out of shape like you know archaeological artifacts being driven over by a tractor a few times get a bit bashed around yeah. but still there's a there's a deep kind of sense in it uh, in the wonkiness of the narrative I find absolutely and I think I think for me, it helps me to also think that, you know, it's very easy to think of Wales as one nation and of everybody knowing these stories and everybody owning these stories. And I don't think that's the way it was. These mm-hmm. would have been tribal stories and those tribes would have had their own deities and their own way of thinking about things. Even though, you know, they were might have all identified maybe as Celts, you would mostly have identified as being Demeti. Ordovician, but not with the Roman names, but with the original names for them. And so, you know, there would have been differences in how those stories said and different locations for where those stories were located in, in, in different tribes across not just Wales, but across Britain mm. at the time. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. And how did we end? Diolch Michael.